0: We're in a profession where the supply is greater than the demand, and you need to know not only the the substantive law and how to be a great trial lawyer, you need to know how you can make yourselves different from all the other lawyers in South Carolina or Michigan or wherever you practice. And if you want to have any kind of quality of life, you better learn to be a good manager.
1: You're listening to Best Practices with Kenny Berger. On this podcast, we talk with the country's top trial lawyers about their approaches to every aspect of practice, from case selection to closing argument. Hello, and welcome to Best Practices with Kenny Berger. My guest today is Steve Gersten, who is with us uh, from Michigan, and we were just talking before we hit record. Steve was, was one of the attorneys who already had a a national presence and, and reputation when I was a, a baby lawyer, but he was one of those guys who was always very approachable, very encouraging, very much. Hey, you know, come hang out with us, come have dinner with us. And now it's a real guest to have you on the podcast So, Steve. Welcome. Thank you.
0: Thanks. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah. And so you are in Michigan. Tell us a little bit about your practice and how you got your start.
0: Sure. Uh, well, I'm, I'm, my law firm is Michigan auto law. Uh, actually, I have three law firms, but that's, that's my main one. Uh, that's a whole other story about the other two as well. But uh, we have 20 lawyers and two main offices, uh, one in Metro Detroit, one in Grand Rapids. So I always say I don't want to own the world, but I do want to own Michigan.
1: That's great. And, and your dad was a lawyer as well?
0: Yeah. So I was lucky enough to uh, start working with my dad. Um, my mom wouldn't let him fire me when I was a young, <laughs> insufferable lawyer, um, and it was a great way to learn. Uh, what What happened was I I started at a law firm in New York City that actually is pretty famous. Forbes magazine called it one of the five most profitable law firms in the in the world. Um, for I worked for a couple of very very special lawyers. One, uh, Tom Moore, actually has, or at least had, I believe he still has more. A million multi-million dollar verdicts than any other lawyer in the country. And a really special lawyer. I went to his law school. Uh, he hired me when I was uh, first year, and I was able to skip a lot of my next two years of law school. and I got to see a lot of him and Judy Livingston in trial and some of the other lawyers. And then when I was getting ready to graduate, I had a problem because they liked me and, and they asked me to continue there but how do you ever get courtroom experience when literally every case in a law firm is a multi-million dollar case and that's really what they're known for they they had catastrophic you know birth trauma cases and you know i had a real tough decision to make do i want to spend the next 10 years of my life flying on planes all over the country deposing doctors but you know really never stepping foot in a courtroom except for maybe motion practice and backbenching it to two superstars. Or do I want to try and get courtroom experience right away? And my dad had a, a smaller law firm. It was, it was three lawyers at the time. And it was 1995. That was when I when I graduated. And that was ironically, right around the time that Allstate and and then some of the other insurance companies started their, their MIST program. A MIS stands for a minimal impact soft tissue. And what was happening was for the first time in about 20 years, they were not settling cases and plaintiff lawyers didn't know what to do because all these soft tissue cases with low vehicle damage, they were making them try. And, you know, at the time I'm talking with my dad and my dad said, well, I'll tell you what, if you want to come home, I got a lot of cases for you to try because you know we're not getting any settlement offers on a lot of these cases. So I decided I would, I would come home. And within about a couple months, I started trying cases. In my first year, I was lucky enough to get a, my first million dollar verdict on a $10,000 offer from Allstate on a, on a minimal impact soft tissue case. And something really interesting happened, which is even though I was a baby, baby lawyer, And didn't even know what I didn't know. All of a sudden, I had lawyers starting to refer me these cases. And then ironically, two years later, on a really, really tough brain injury case where the person had worked for eight months after the crash, uh, never missed a day of work, I was able to get $4 million. And all of a sudden, lawyers all over Michigan wanted to start referring me their, their brain injury cases. And that's really how I started my career. Was I wanted to be a, a superstar trial lawyer, and I wanted to have other lawyers referring me cases, and and that was how I thought I wanted to live. And about ten years into it, it just occurred to me that a, you know, I don't know how sustainable this is because, you know, ten years in, I had. Over 200 cases on my own, I had two paralegals and an associate and I was working 80 hours a week, but, you know, I also had a wife and I was starting a young family and, you know, there are only so many hours and I was worried about sustainability, you know, can you sustain that pace? And I think that's where a lot of lawyers have trouble, right? That's why we have such problems with burnout and, and you know, chemical dependencies and drinking and, and all the, the things that, you know, are real challenges and that's why so many lawyers have real health issues. And the other thing that always bothered me about that was I didn't like being at the whim of, of other lawyers, where I try a case, but let's say the next hot young lawyer comes and they're offering 50% on referrals instead of one third, you know, or just, again, quality of life issues. Do I want to miss my My kid's first day of school because, you know, someone's referring me a hot grounder. and Now I have to drop everything again for another trial. So I'm I'm really happy I had those first 10 years because it created the base and the foundation for everything that came next. But I realized I better learn something about marketing as well. So I can take more control of my own destiny and my own future and not just be dependent on, on, you know, the whims of, of others. And the other thing that happened was, you know, I'm, I'm, it's funny, but I, I'm in a seminar one day and it just dawned on me as I'm, I'm listening to some lawyer give a talk on opening statements. And I remember having this thought and I looked around the room, it's a full room, and I'm, I'm looking, I'm thinking, you know, I don't think there are three lawyers in this entire room that have even tried a case this year. But they're all here and they're learning about opening statements and most of them probably haven't even tried a case in five years why aren't they learning about how to make the phones ring? You know, why aren't they learning in a, in know, overcrowded profession where the supply of lawyers is clearly greater than the demand, how to make themselves different and distinguish themselves and make themselves remarkable so they could stand out. In other words, why aren't they doing something that can, that can really change their lives and their practice every single day? So, um, I started teaching myself a little bit about marketing. And, you know, I still had well over 200 cases and I still was trying a lot of cases. But, you know, I remember at the time I would, I'd come home, you know, around six, I would have dinner with my wife and kids. I'd put them to bed. And then like from 10 p.m. to midnight, I'd start learning, teaching myself about marketing, right? I I thought it was fascinating because it was so different from everything that we do on a day-to-day basis. And it was fun for me. So I actually went out and I went to some internet SEO seminars. And then I started, um, I was one of the early adapters on creating a a legal website. And, you know, it's funny. And I, I look to it today, you know, just jumping to today. And, you know, we've gone now from four lawyers to now over 20. And, you know, and I also have two other law firms. And it's all been that part of it has been based on teaching myself how to market as well. And I, I think there's a lesson in there for all of us, which is, you know, so much of what we're required to do. Let me take a step back. Um, and I'm sorry if I'm, I'm going on too long, Kenny, but...
1: You're not going on too long. The reason I'm not interjecting is because I'm enjoying it so much. Well, Keep going.
0: That's That's generous of you. But, you know, think about every lawyer you know. And it is so rare to find a lawyer that can wear all three hats, that that can be a great trial lawyer, that can be a great manager, and can be a great marketer. You just never see that, right? It is really, really rare. And I think the reason it's rare is, is because lawyers don't take the time to teach themselves those valuable skills that you really need to have. Again, because we're in a profession where the supply is greater than the demand, and you need to know not only the the substantive law and how to be a great trial lawyer, you need to know how you can make yourselves different from all the other lawyers in South Carolina or in Michigan or wherever you practice. And if you want to have any kind of quality of life, you better learn to be a good manager. It is really important, so you need to spend the time. And it is not intuitive. It is not innate. You really have to set out to to. Learn that and you have to be humble and, and you have to adapt that, that beginner's mind, you know, so to speak of, you know, realizing the things you don't know and, and reaching out to people so you can learn those things or like you having the wisdom to realize it's not penny wise and pound foolish to hire a COO, you know, to do the day-to-day business. So you don't need to get caught up in one is being mean to another secretary uh, and it takes an hour out of your day. Um, but you need to have the wisdom to look at your practice and be able to look at making sure you you have a handle on those three areas.
1: So, Steve, we and thank you for the for the history. And there there was a lot in there. I didn't know. I mean, I've known you for a good while. And again, you've always been very generous with me. So I'm I'm glad to 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 provide the generosity in return. But you know, we talked some about that path to being a really top-notch trial lawyer. We talked some about your appreciation of the need for, for marketing. Tell us what you've done to become someone who is able to manage or have a management structure in place that still allows you to be a top tier trial lawyer and a top tier marketer.
0: Sure. So I think it starts with, you have to think about your strengths and weaknesses and, and where you can, frankly, make the biggest difference in your law firm. And again, it comes back to also quality of life and sustainability. Can you still be doing the same thing at the same pace over the next three, five, and 10 years? So for me, well, uh, I mean, today, for example, I've gone from having well over 200 cases personally to I, I now have 10. You know, now each one of those cases is at least a seven-figure case, but I work the hell out of them. And, you know, and obviously I, I, I have my hands on more than 10, you know, I've got a couple that judges have referred, you know, that I'm, you know, I'll, I'll handle as a favor. I've got a couple that I'm fronting. There's another 10 or 20 that, um, you know, just because the way the legal profession works and, you know, my name is on there and, and they're telling the other side that I'll be the trial attorney. Because uh, it adds more value to the case, but for the most part, the way I allocate my time is I try to spend my mornings when I'm freshest, um, and you can't do this every day because some days you have depositions and some days you have court. But I try to spend my mornings working on my files. And again, you know, the idea
1: is. So, so Steve, I just I got to jump in real quick. Sure. So Chelsea Fullerton, who's our marketing director, is, is always on the podcast with us. And as soon as you said that, or as soon as you began to say that, I knew Chelsea was going to be like. He's going to say work on his files because like that's the, you know, when I get here, I I close the door. And basically from the time I get a cup of coffee until lunch, when I'm fresh, again, like you said, not always. But when I'm fresh, it's like now is the time to to use my brain in the way that that requires actually the most cognitive power.
0: Yeah, well, think of it like this. You know, at the end of every day, I have close to 300 emails. I probably have 20 or more voicemails. You can't focus and really think critically about your cases and really do a deep analysis of the holes and the red flags and ways to increase value at the end of the day, when you're being pulled in a hundred different directions and you're fried. So, you know, there, there is that cognitive, only so much cognitive power that you have. So I'm the same way. You know, I, I really try to focus on my cases during the day when I'm freshest. And then in the afternoons, that's when I deal with everything else, the marketing, the management. And then at the end of the day, I try to then, you know, get to emails and I always do make sure that I'm returning every phone call or at the very least, my secretary is calling people back and letting them know that I'm aware you've called and I'm going to call you back at this time tomorrow. But I want to, I want to take a minute to touch on that if you don't mind, because Please. yes, being the best in your business is really important for lawyers and lawyer referrals, Right. And for a good segment of people that will come to your website, it's really important that you could say, I have the best results in, in Michigan or in South Carolina. And you've got the verdicts and settlements to back that up. There's a segment of the marketplace that they're just looking for the lawyer who's going to be the very best. But you know, I, I'm an econ major <laughs> in college, and there's some things I learned that are really important. And one of them was there's a There was an obscure Hungarian economist whose name was Tibor Satovsky from the 1960s. So no one would ever have heard of him if you didn't study econ. But what he said, which really has had a profound impact on me, is that lay people cannot effectively evaluate professional services. In other words, things like law, they'll never know how you argue that motion and frankly, most of your clients, ninety plus percent. If you tell me you got ninety thousand on a case or nine hundred thousand on a case, well, that, that's a little bit more extreme. But my point is, most of them really don't know what their cases are worth. But what they do know is how you make them feel. And what Tibor Satovsky and others have have said is, they will evaluate the success of your relationship the success of that relationship based upon how you made them feel because they're not able to effectively evaluate the results. And that has really important lessons for us when we're in the age of Google reviews and Yelp reviews and Avo, because that is why it is so critical that you have a culture in your office where you are emphasizing client service, that you are emphasizing that you're returning every phone call that you care and that you actually have empathy and that starts at your front desk and it has to be part of your culture because at the end of the day, your clients, 90 plus percent of them are never going to know if the settlement you gave them is a great settlement or not, because they don't know what to compare it to, but they'll always remember that Kenny called me at 8 PM or Kenny called me on a Sunday. And, and they'll always remember that and they're going to tell it to every person they know, and they will be your apostles and they will go out in the community and refer you cases based upon the fact that you you show them and demonstrate that you care. So most lawyers, the, the worst thing about our culture as lawyers, especially when you deal with older lawyers, is they feel like talking to clients is something for paralegals to do. And you talk to older lawyers, you know, I hate to say it, but they really believe that, you know, they grew up in the ages of yellow pages or You know, a lot of these TV lawyers, they still feel the same way or billboard lawyers. You know, they have over 300 cases. They're operating on a totally different type of, you know, $3,000 per phone call. They can't even return a phone call to save their lives. And yeah, they can make a lot of money in practice that way. But that way also has real consequences now, because now for the first time ever in our profession, there are real ramifications to not calling people back. And you know, that's why in this age of Google reviews, you really gotta try and instill this Nordstrom's Disney type customer service culture. And well, you know, it's funny, there's very few things that can get someone in trouble in my office with me. But one of them is when I find them making fun or talking bad about their own clients. Because that is that is so destructive to the culture.
1: Yes. The exact same thing. And the one that gets me is um. Is when I'm, you know, if you're walking by and you know there's a there's a conversation being had or we're sitting in a meeting and someone presents the facts of the case as if they were the all-state piece of software, you know, it's always like, I'm gonna get a hat that says insurance adjuster on it, and I'm gonna give it to you, you know. And when when whoever starts doing it this way, whoever's in essence serving as, as outside adjusting agent for the carrier. You know, who's who's not treating this like a person, not talking about them as a client, but talking about them in, in this statistical algorithmic, if that's a word, way that totally removes the law and inserts nothing but kind of insurance logic and bias. We just we can't do it. That's not practicing law. That's just adjusting insurance claims. But on the other side of the V,
0: you know, so it's funny when I I graduated from Michigan and I. I basically had straight A's. I graduated law school. I basically had straight A's. I worked for this great firm, and I remember this is uh, the, um, the reason I'm telling you this is when I was talking to my dad, and we were talking about whether I should come home or not. You know, I was like, "Of course, you're going to offer me a job." You know, I'm, you know, of course, you know. And um, he didn't. And what he said to me, and this, this, I'll never forget this. He's like, "I won't hire you." unless you could tell me that you really like people and you really want to help them. And if that's not the case, Steve, then you really should work in a, you know, go work in a big corporate law firm where you don't deal with people. Uh, If you want to be a people lawyer, you have to care about people. And I remember at the time, you know, at first being a little bit offended, (laughs) you know, like, what do you mean? I haven't gotten a B in seven years. And And then I thought more about it and I'm like, Wow, that that is probably the best thing he could have ever said to me because it puts everything else in, in perspective, and it's been a great lesson for me because you do have to care in this profession; you really do.
1: So, Steve, how do you what do you do at your firm to to instill that culture, and also the the supervision or the management that that I don't not only perpetuates the culture but but serves as as the guarantee or you know is 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 really enforcing. Well, not really enforcing, but, you know, helping ensure that there's buy-in and that that if there isn't that intrinsic buy-in that, you know, everyone recognizes it's not a great fit and and folks can go different ways. Right.
0: Well, first, you do have to enforce it. And that starts with you as the firm owner. You know, it starts with Jim Collins. If you ever read the book, Good to Great, getting the right people on the bus and the wrong people off the bus, there will be people that will be toxic to your culture. You know, there may be really good secretaries, but they came from a defense background and they're talking horrible things about your clients. You know, they roll their eyes every time they have to take a client phone call. You know, like I said, I, I had a problem when I was taking over my law firm um, in 2007. That's when I bought my dad out. So, you know, with some of the older lawyers, uh, because they grew up in a Yellow Pages era where they felt, felt that Paralegals are, are supposed to talk to the clients. You know, we don't need to. We're too good for that. And you just, you have to make it clear. Um, number one, because it's the right thing to do. But number two, even if you don't care that it's the right thing to do, that there will be major consequences. Because again, we're in this Google world now of Google reviews. And if you want to be successful on the website, for example, well, those reviews are really important. And sentiment is really important. How people feel about you is incredibly important. I'm I'm amazed every week that, that we are getting phone calls from people that literally spend hours reading reviews. But we have to, why should we be so surprised? If people spend hours reading and studying on the web about buying a TV or a car, why wouldn't they do the same thing for a lawyer, right? So you need to instill that culture And if you have toxic employees, you need to get rid of them and you need to reward those people who do have great service and recognize them. So like, for example, it's little things, Ken, but, you know, it's, you know, every time we get a Google review, at least a couple of times a week, I'm making sure to email that out to all users in my, in my law firm, emphasizing the parts of that review that are so important. And, and really acknowledging the people that are behind the review and, you know, just emphasizing that culture over and over again. And then I also make it a part of, you know, you got to put your money where your mouth is, right? So bonuses are based on having happy clients that are writing reviews and, and referring others. And conversely, you know, it's really hard to get fired in my law firm Um like, I really don't care if a lawyer loses a case. I really don't. I, I, I want them to go in and try cases. If we're going to be a trial law firm, that's part of it. You're never going to get in trouble with me if, if you get no cost. You will get in big trouble with me if I find out you're not returning phone calls. And we have a 24-hour rule, and we enforce it strictly. And if someone cannot, because let's say they're tied up in an arbitration or they're out of town, you know, speaking at a seminar or what have you, if they can't return that phone call, at the very least, I'm making sure that their secretary at the end of the day is returning a call to those people and letting them know that, Hey, you know, Steve is aware that you called. Uh, he's, he's out of state right now. And, you know, he's in, he's occupied, but he knows you called and he will get back to you and he's going to get back to you now, you know, at, at this date and time. And, you know, for me, and I think for you, probably a lot of your clients deal with pain. A lot of them are dealing with serious depression. A lot of them are dealing with brain injuries. And you have to appreciate that if you're not doing that, these people are going to go crazy, you know, and, and their minds will start, you know, they get very unhappy very quickly. And think about all the calls you get every week from, from people who are clients of other law firms, who are so unhappy with the lawyers that they're working with because they're not getting returned phone calls. So it's the number one thing you can do. So it's just part of instilling that culture and just recognizing that it's not enough to be a really talented lawyer and having good settlements. You have to also treat people well, return phone calls, show respect, and have caring.
1: And that starts with us. And Steve, when when you're looking for those people and I'm just curious, in, in the hiring process, are there specific attributes, experiences, qualities, interview markers that, that you're looking for and that, that you've seen and been able to identify patterns that say, "Yes, you know this person's going to be a good fit at Michigan auto law," or no. you know we've learned from past experience that, that these are some tells that this will not be a fit?
0: Yes, so uh, for a lot of my staff, we do psychological testing on everybody. And I'm always amazed how accurate it is.
1: Go do Myers-Briggs I, or something else? We, we do a combination.
0: Um, but even a simple 20-minute disk, it, it's just amazing. You know, you go online for 10 bucks, you can do a disk test. You know, it takes 20 minutes. But, you know, I look at some of my employees, I read their files, and I, I sometimes look casually at the, the testing that's in their file from five years earlier. And I'm just laughing because it's just it nailed it, you know, like dead on, Right. Um uh, I'm always, I'm just amazed how accurate it is. With most of my lawyers, the vast majority, I actually have hired them as law clerks first. And I do that on purpose because I, I have a real problem with lateral hiring um, from other law firms. Because I think, you know, most lawyers, they don't go out to seminars, they don't read books, they develop terrible habits. And Frankly, they're not as good as they think they are, and a lot of them come from toxic cultures. The reason I like law students that have worked with me for at least two years, clerking for us, is I get to literally watch them for two years, and I get to see how they interact with people for two years. I get to see their their work habits, their work ethic. I get to see how they talk to clients, and you, know, you have a pretty good idea of what someone is like after two years of watching them. And we're very fortunate. We, we have a really talented supply of law clerks. I think 12 of my last 15 hires have been people that originally started as law clerks. But it gives me an opportunity to train them from scratch. So for example, things like AAJ Depth College. I, I've sent every lawyer in my office to that but man, I mean that is a that is a life changing seminar for a young lawyer, because ninety percent of what they're doing is depositions, and Dep College shaves five years of making mistakes, you know, right off the bat, and you know, and especially like if you're hiring, for example, because I'm always bothered still by how, for example, young female lawyers are treated in our profession, and I can't believe still how some older judges or older lawyers talk. And Depp College teaches young female lawyers how to deal with that. Um, you know, teaches them about hall the Clifton precision, how to stop obnoxious obstructive behavior, um, how to how to just stop it immediately. And and I love that. And I, I train my my lawyers from scratch. You know, I send them to ATAA for trucking. I send them to Depp College. I send them, you know, to the traumatic brain injury seminars. I literally spend over one hundred fifty thousand dollars a year. Sending every one of my lawyers all over the country to seminars. But, you know, it's funny, we're dealing now with millennial lawyers. That's how long I've been in practice. And when we talk about reaching the younger lawyers in the millennial generation, one of the most important things they are, they're looking for is, is a firm that will invest in them. That they're not only going to bleed them dry, but it's going to really make them better lawyers and it's going to invest in them. And one of the reasons why I'm so successful getting law review and, and, you know, top of moot court students to work for me as versus working for the big corporate law firm where their starving salary could be twice as much is because I tell them, you know, I will invest a huge amount of money in making you great. I'm going to support you. Every lawyer in my office knows they can go to at least one and usually two out-of-state seminars a year. I tell them, I don't care how small the case is. You have unlimited license to go out and hire a jury consultant because it's never just about that case; it's about every case you're going to have for the rest of your career. And I want you to learn. And the other thing I tell them is, I want you to be great. So don't worry about making mistakes. You know, I look back at my first couple trials and I just laugh at at you know what I do now compared to what I did then. But you have to learn somehow, and you're going to get your head kicked in no matter what, and you're going to make those mistakes. It's inevitable. So I'd so much rather they make those inevitable mistakes when the stakes are much lower on, on a case, you know, that's only worth, you know, where the offer is 50000 than going eight years without being in trial and then making a big mistake where the offer is 500000 and they're asking for $5 million. And, and it pays off. And the best example I can give you of that is... Because it's 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 been such a huge way for me to continue sustainably in this practice is um, two days ago a lawyer in my office Tom James who started as a law clerk and who I hired as a law clerk went in and got a fourteen point three million dollar verdict on a twenty five thousand dollar offer they never offered more than twenty five thousand now that's fantastic and. But the other reason that's fantastic is it doesn't just have to be me now trying every case that I have a an entire law firm of very talented lawyers that I've invested a tremendous amount of time and money in that can take those cases. So I could, like last week, I could be taking my daughter and moving her into college, into the dorm, and I don't have to drop everything in my life to go try that case because I've got really talented capable lawyers that could step in and try that case and you multiply that now by 10 other trial lawyers and now think about it it's it's not just what you could do and produce in terms of final output it's it's that number times eight or times ten and now you're you're warping the amount of money you're making at the end of the year so you're you're doing well by doing good and you're creating great lawyers you're creating tremendous loyalty, you're creating a great culture. And now I could handle a lot more cases because I've got a lot more capable lawyers able to handle it. Uh, and I don't have to worry about stroking out and burning out at the age of 55, like, like I was worried about 10, 15 years ago.
1: <laughs> Man, that was good. You know, it's funny, like on the one hand, it's like, "Gosh, Steve just explained the universe. And on the other hand, it's like, I've got a thousand different thousand different questions. So, Steve, we talked about finding the clerks and, and then them developing through some really incredible ways and then becoming you know, lawyers throughout getting eight-figure verdicts. But for your, for your hiring process, as it comes to, when it comes to hiring clerks and deciding if they're going to stay on as, as attorneys with you, tell us a little more about that.
0: Well, I have a very unique hiring process. I should say a very unique interviewing process. When I said I don't think much normally, normally about lateral hiring, and, and about the bad habits they tend to bring with them, I, you know, one of the things that I think is really interesting is, you know, we deal with a profession of extroverts, and anyone can basically bullshit pretty well for an hour, uh, but the question is, how are they going to be in the trenches every day, and are they going to be great lawyers that are making you money or not? And if you listen to their egos <laughs> during the interview process, every one of them looks like they're going to be, you know, your warhorse, they're a multi million dollar star. So, what I started doing, I have a very unique way of interviewing uh, lawyers because I, I do have some lateral hires too. And some of them are just superstars. So, for example, um, my last hire in Grand Rapids on the, the Western side of the state is a lawyer who has well over 60 trial verdicts. You know, it's just, it's just so rare these days to have a lawyer that has that much experience and that much trial experience. But as a defense lawyer, he's no-caused you know, and caused great misery to about every plaintiff lawyer in the state at one time, including me. So I, I finally just offered him enough money for him to <laughs> come and work for us. And, and it's been great. But not every lawyer is, is, like, is like that. So what I started doing about 10 years ago is I try to separate the wheat from the chaff. And when I have a lawyer who's, who's coming in from another law firm and they, let's say they're 10 years out, what I do is I start asking them the kinds of questions that will help me to know really how much they really know. So I always ask, this is where I always start i want to know do they read the books and do they go to the seminars and that tells me so much about them and the desire they have or the lack of desire more often than not to get better to try and improve themselves to be the best in their in their trade and if a lawyer isn't reading you know the books by dorothy sims by rick Friedman, by david ball you know there's so many great tools of, uh, available to us these days. And if they're not availing themselves of it, then, then why? But it's probably someone I don't want. If they're not going to seminars, and I can't stand when they say, well, my law firm won't pay for it. If they have a burning desire to be great, they should be paying for it.
1: Yeah. It's the old, when I couldn't afford to do it is when I had to do it most because I couldn't afford not to.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And and that tells you so much about their desire to be great. But then I just, I try to get through the bullshit. So I'll ask them the kinds of questions that will let me quickly know what they really know. So, for example, I'll say, okay, um, tell me how someone can be seriously injured in a crash with no vehicle damage. Right? I mean, they, they've been practicing for 10 years. They've probably dealt with 100 adjusters that have, have made this argument to them. How do they respond? What do they know? I asked them to tell me, how can a herniated disc cause pain? If they've been out for 10 years, they've probably done 100 orthopedic surgeon depositions. Well, you should be able to explain the mechanism of pain, why it causes pain, why a bulging disc can cause incapacitating pain, why a soft tissue injury can be permanent and can cause severe pain. in other words, what have they been doing for 10 years? if they don't know this stuff. I asked them to explain how someone could have a serious brain injury if they have a normal MRI and a normal CT scan. I mean, I'm not making up these questions. These are, these are things that they have encountered probably every day going to court, talking to defense lawyers or claims adjusters on the phone, or even to hostile judges. And if they can't explain it to me, how are they gonna explain it to a jury? And, and you will know by their answers that this is someone that's either going to make you a lot of money or is going to lose you a lot of money. So, you know, I go through a whole series of questions like that and it it helps me to figure out just, just where they are substantively. And you know, the reality is as long as they don't have to get it perfect, I don't expect everyone is going to know brain injury as well as I do or trucking or what have you. And I can train them, but my God, I mean, this was our chosen profession. You, you have to, this is our trade. If you don't know the basic medicine, if you don't know the basic counter arguments to these things that an adjuster is going to tell you literally every single day on the phone, then what have you been doing for 10 years? And, 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 and you know, I, I feel so bad for their clients. So those are some of the interview questions that I ask. And, you know, I have had lawyers who are very full of themselves and full of bravado, uh, slink out of my office and I'm, and I'm not trying to be mean or nasty, obviously, but it, it helps me figure out, are they posers? And and if so, then understand they're going to be a poser for you. They're going to cost you a lot of money and probably cause you a lot of misery, or are they going to be people that you could work with who really have the potential to be great. And it goes back to what I was saying in the beginning about, you always have to think about your sustainability, the pace, Because we are in a high stress profession, and this can't all be on us. You need to be able to delegate it to excellent lawyers. And and that really is going to be the only way that we can survive and and thrive in what's otherwise a very, very tough profession that does take its pound of flesh. So, you know, it's important to find those, find out the answers to that.
1: And Steve, with with the team of trial lawyers that you've put together, do you also have lawyers with? within your firm that are, that are more of your, you know, for lack of a better term, kind of the back house attorneys, your, your motions practice, your appellate people, uh, folks who not, might not necessarily be sitting first chair at your jury trial, but might be sitting second chair, might be sitting there, you know, one row back.
0: Yes. The way I do it is I have what's called a pre lawsuit unit and then the litigation unit. And the idea with pre suit is we can't, with the pace of, of litigation, of depositions, of trial, have the critical time and quiet to really be able to focus and analyze cases. And, and that's my starting premise. And if that's the case, because at the end of every day, you have 300 emails and 20 to 30 phone calls to return, and you just finished a four-hour deposition how are you ever going to critically look at a case and make sure that they're getting the proper referrals and the medical documentation? And, you know, for lack of a better way of saying it, it's being worked up properly, getting to the right specialists, that potential holes are being plugged so that you're not only maximizing value, but you're, you're minimizing the mistakes that also can cost you hundreds of thousands of dollars. And the whole idea of pre-suit is, Lawyers who will never leave the office, who are always there in the first critical months to take that phone call when, frankly, clients have the most anxiety and and need the most help. And the idea is that there will always be a lawyer there to take their phone call and answer their questions. And it, it removes so much anxiety and stress during that critical first four to six months when the case is building or not building. Um, but I look at, at pre lawsuit almost as an incubation hub. And the idea is you take cases that could be worth X and you're turning them into Y. And there'll be some cases that, you know, thank God people get better and they go back to work in a couple of weeks and there's nothing you can do. And I'm happy to close their files, but we understand there will be a sizable percentage that will continue to have pain. That pain will get worse. They will go in and get that, that MRI It will show a, a badly ruptured disc they'll have that surgery. And the next thing you know, you have a million dollar case. And the problem with litigators doing everything, pre-suit and litigation, is you have too many cases that die on the vine because they don't get the attention they need early on. And then you multiply that by all the cases in your office and you're now losing millions of dollars. So we have a team that never leaves the office. And then... After that case has been sufficiently worked up and we know pretty well what that case is worth, let's say within 70 to 80 percent, you know, we know liability, we know policy limits. We have a pretty damn good idea of what the injuries are. Then that case either gets ready for a demand. It goes to litigation so that we can start the lawsuit. Or if it's a case that frankly falls below the threshold of, of really being a worthwhile case to handle, it gets referred out to another lawyer. And you know I've developed, like every lawyer should, frankly, a group of tier lawyers that that will take those cases that still have value, but maybe not as much value that you would want in your office, but that will still care about clients and return phone calls, and it will still reflect well on you. And we refer those cases out. But you have that, that decision tree within four to six months of basically demand, lawsuit, or fur out, or close. And you really need to take that four to six months because you really never know how cases are going to pan out. And after that, you know, cases move on accordingly. But I think it's a, it's a great way of maximizing value. And especially if you're a busy litigator, you will never be able to spend the time to critically analyze those cases the way that someone will when they're in the office eight hours a day. And, and that is their entire job. To maximize value and to return those phone calls, so I, I think that's been one of the best things we've ever done, frankly.
1: And then, Steve, do you have beyond that are there are there any divisions or, or teams that exist within that litigation sphere, or do you have lawyers within your firm who say, you know, I come to you and I say, hey, Steve, you know, I've got this case, I'd love to work on it with with Chelsea at the firm, or hey, Steve, I got this case, hey man, I'd, I'd love to work on it with Uh, with you or with, you know, the fellow in Grand Rapids, how do you, how do you handle those questions or if they don't arise? Sure. So, so obviously
0: if someone is asking, let's say a referral lawyer is asking that the case go to a specific lawyer. Well, that's your referral lawyer. So it's going to go to that lawyer. But what, what I did, which is I, I believe pretty unique to my law firm, Ken, is I created an auction system. And what I do is, every month to six weeks six weeks or so we put a number of cases into an auction and there's a beauty to that because first it lets you can look at a case completely differently than I can and the reality is I might not want that case and you may love that case and you may think you're gonna do a great job on that
1: case yeah we, we've got a lawyer that he and I work together on on a there are a number of cases, but then there's some cases where I'm like, I love that case. It's like, ah, I just don't like it. And then there are cases where I'm like, I don't like that case. And he goes out, you know, makes a ton of money on it. And I'm like, okay.
0: And that goes to show you there's there's it's art as well as science. And two lawyers can look at the same case, and one may think it's a dog, frankly, and one may love it. Well, I want that lawyer that loves that case to have it, because you're gonna end up with a better result for the client and a happier lawyer, too. But the other reason that the auction system has worked so well for us is, again, it's putting your money where your mouth is. So the auction is based on on a snake system, for lack of a better word, uh, based on points. So it's not just so the, for example, total point combinations are based on a number of factors. Obviously, one is how much money you're producing because your best lawyer should get the best cases or, or the best pick of cases. And then I incentivize other things. So for example, every law firm owner I know complains about how hard it is to get their attorneys to get reviews, right? Well, do you monetize it and incentivize it? Because we make it part of the auction and every review is worth a certain number of points. And the more reviews you get, the more points you get. And then the better cases you can get at the auction. Another example is trial. So I do a number of things to incentivize trial because we need to be a true trial author. So every lawyer that tries a case gets a huge number of points because I want to incentivize that. And then, you know, I do other things. Like, for example, every lawyer that that tries a case to verdict gets to keep one third of the verdict amount, no matter what. You know, you you have to incentivize, for example, lawyers hate rainmaking. You know, they don't want to go out for lunch with an orthopedic, you know, they, they... but if you incentivize it, so, you know, for example, I tell lawyers that any case you bring in as personal, you get to keep 50%. Well, you know, when I tell that to most lawyers, they go crazy. Well, you can't pay your associate 50%. That's crazy, you know, but guess what? They're incentivized now to go out and, and have those lunches and have those late night dinners. And it, it changes how they practice law. You know, they're incentivized to go out to all their classmates from law school and send them a letter saying, hey, guess what? I'm at the top auto law firm in Michigan now. If you have a big trucking case or a big auto case, think of me. You know, we always guarantee referrals and that lawyer knows he's getting 50 percent. And again, those are things that at the end of the year really move the ball and again, adds tremendous value to your, your profitability at the end of the year. So we have a whole series of things. Attending seminars also is, is worth points because I always want to be better and, and be a law firm that's learning and growing. And, and then based on total point totals, which we calculate from scratch again, every four to six weeks when we have the auction, it gets, it gets updated and it's based on a trailing past 18 months. So it's total points up to you know, the last 18 months. Uh, the lawyers then have their pick of the cases and it's funny because every time you know i review them all and i have my list of what i think are the best cases in order and i'm always amazed at the end of the auction how different it is from what i thought were the best cases but there's a lesson here right and the lesson is is that if i were the one distributing those cases talk about a thankless job because there'd always be suspicion among the lawyers that Oh, Steve likes this lawyer more than this one. And, you know, the favoritism or, you know, whatever it is. And, and this makes it totally objective, takes out all those factors that could be toxic to culture, you know, suspicion, bias, favoring one lawyer over another. And it makes it something where it's an even playing field and everybody sees the cases. And I think it's been really great for our culture and creating a trusting environment, and where, frankly, not only the best lawyers are getting the best cases, but also the lawyers are getting the cases they want. And at the end of every auction, another thing that's helpful is normally five or six cases that nobody wanted. And now we get to have a brainstorm session and say, okay, why didn't she want this case? What are the holes? What was wrong with it? And then it either goes back to pre-suit, but now we have the opinions of every lawyer in the firm on what they thought were the holes are. So we can then address those holes and, and make it better. So we could then bring it back to the auction at a future auction. Or we know that it's just probably not a case that we should have in our office and that we can refer it out or close it. So it's been a really good system. And if you want to instill in your law firm a true meritocracy, A true meritocracy, which is the only way you're going to have great lawyers stay with you at the end of the year. You're not going to have great lawyers stay with you if you don't treat them great and and have a system where they know they are treated super fair. And and it's based, frankly, on only their own ability with no ceiling on how much they can make. Otherwise, you know they're going to leave you at some point. So it creates a culture of, of openness and honesty and transparency, but it's, it's been one of the best things we've ever done.
1: And and Steve, you know, you've been a thought leader in the field and, and someone who is creative and genius and just a keen, a keen mind. I'm interested for all the, the teaching and encouragement that you provide and for all the resources that, that. You're making sure your folks are, are out seeking. Who are, who are you looking to, to learn from? I mean, who, when, be it in, in law, in uh, marketing, in management, who is, who is Steve Gersten looking to right now? Who is Steve Gersten reading right now to make sure you're staying cutting edge and, and ahead of that curve on that with that vanguard? I love that question.
0: <laughs> you know, I'm very, very lucky. Michael Lieserman and Joe Freed are two of my very best friends in this world. Uh, we actually created our own law firm together. I have a network of just, um, you know, I'm very fortunate. I, I have, you know, Ken Levinson, uh, just, I have so many great lawyers who I can also call great friends. And it's, it's tremendous to have that and to be able to stand on the shoulders of giants. And, and the reality is, you know, they say that a rising tide lifts all boats and it's true, you know, every year I meet with a group of friends and we bring the very best case we have in our office and we round table it together and we spend three days just working on our cases. I have another group of friends and we just talk about our offices. You know, they're all out-of-state lawyers, so none of them are direct competitors. And we just, we share how we can be better lawyers, better managers. We share what we're doing on marketing that really is working. And that has been so helpful. It's funny, like I'll give you going back to Michael and Joe, for example, both of them are, are gifted, gifted trial lawyers. Both of them try a case completely differently from how I would. And I can't even imagine uh, trying to case the way Joe does, for example. But you can't argue with Joe's results. Michael is the same. You know, Michael gets up there and it's at Trial Lawyers College. You know, bare your soul, being completely open and honest. And I can't do that. I'm not comfortable with that. You know, I grew up in the mist era where, you know, I want to just drive over someone and then put the car in reverse and drive over them again. (laughs) My way is probably a little bit more, you know, David Ball, frankly, than it is Trial Lawyers College. But being able to bounce cases off my friends like that is such a gift on trucking you know i i'm a past chair of the trucking group well i have a text chain with 20 of the best trucking lawyers in the country and every day we're putting some trucking issue on that text chain and now i've got 20 of the best legal minds in the country that are helping me so that that certainly has probably been the best help for me legally in terms of management and marketing. Uh, it's constantly reading and constantly learning. The great thing about today is if there's a young lawyer listening to this, so much of it is free online. You know, the best minds in marketing are putting out blogs with the most amazing content on a weekly basis. It, we have the world literally at our fingertips. You just have to spend the time wanting to grow and get better. And with management, you know, I have my list of favorites. Uh, I mentioned Jim Collins earlier. I think he's fantastic. But, you know, I'm a wonk. You know, I, I am constantly reading. In fact, it's funny because on Sundays when I'm watching football, you know, I sit there and I'm reading peer-reviewed journal articles on, on medicine. But I'm always constantly trying to learn. And part of it is I really feel strongly about the dangers of complacency and the dangers of hubris. And I never want to stop getting better. And man, I think that is death to any organization, hubris and pride. And there's another the part is that it's, it's constantly evolving. So I'll give you an example. I was watching a football game the other day and I'm reading an article in the, in the journal Neurology that's talking about how they can do scans of cerebral spinal fluid. And if they find neurofilaments in there, In the emergency room, they're going to be finding objective proof of brain injury within hours of a crash, which which is going to be transformative to our practices. Because think about a world now where all your brain injury cases aren't going to be argued as as if there was a brain injury with the defense contesting whether or not there even was a brain injury and, you know, arguing malingering and exaggeration and all the other junk that they do. But now you're going to have objective proof of brain injury right in the emergency room. And the question is just going to be, how bad is it and how much is it worth? Well, that's coming. That's coming. And it's going to completely change you know, how we can handle brain injury cases. So, you know, I, I've, I've always been a big believer in, in mastering our trade and being the best in your craft. You know, it goes back to when I was a, a first year lawyer everyone always says, how did you get a million dollars on a soft tissue case when you're a one year lawyer? Well, you know what I did as a baby, baby lawyer, actually before I was even a lawyer, when it was free to attend as a law student, I went to my first AAJ conference, which was then called ATLA. And I heard Paul Skopeter give a talk on winning soft tissue cases. And he had in his reference materials, about thirty articles that were all peer reviewed articles that talked about how even a little soft tissue case can be permanent and cause permanent pain and permanent disability. And when I was cross-examining doctors, I had all 30 of them printed out and I'd come in with a big banker's box, but it changed my practice. You know, I I listened to people like Janice Kim back in 1995. She was the big thing on winning soft tissue cases, but it was the benefit of learning from over a hundred focus groups on how you handle chiropractors, how you handle normal MRIs. And it changed how I practice. You know, just a real quick story. My very first seminar that I went to, I went, I wandered into the Belli seminar. I didn't even know what Belli was at the time. And it was a free seminar. I walk in and I was really depressed because literally the day before, what I thought was the biggest case I had at the time, the person had a stroke, like two weeks after the crash. And they were completely incapacitated. And I thought, oh, great. You know, was there goes is. that case.
1: Just like I'm gonna just throw a shot in the dark. Was it a vertebral dissection? Was it, the stroke very, related? Very
0: close. Yep. So, oh. so there's there was there was a speaker Okay. And he was talking about how people wear seatbelts and it causes trauma to you know the, the arteries in the neck that causes, you know, you know, debris to be discharged that can cause a stroke. And sure enough, I was able to bring the material that he presented at the Bell Eye seminar to the treating doctor, who then gave me causation.
1: So, Steve, we're we're trying a similar case, November fourteenth. Okay. A right, occipital stroke case with funny with,
0: timing.
1: <laughs> yeah, with vertebral dissection. You know, and the other side's looking at us like we're nuts, and it's like, but keep, you're You look at us like we're crazy.
0: The medicine is there. So you know, the point is that was within four months when I was a baby lawyer and I didn't know anything. And it's, it changed the case. So, you know, the the point, I guess the takeaway is this. When I was at my first five years, I promised myself every day I was going to take one hour and I was going to learn something. So Mondays was opening statements. Tuesdays was cross. Wednesdays was medicine. Thursday was no fault, you know, and on and on. But the idea was if I did that every day for an hour within five years, that hopefully I would know more than lawyers have been doing this for decades. And I think lawyers have to take that kind of mentality to their own practice of law and have this constant striving to get better and to constantly improve and just always be careful of hubris, always be careful of complacency because it's easy to get caught up in, in, oh, I'm the best. I already know everything. And, And that's when you get overtaken by competitors. Because at the end of the day, and I'll end where I started with you, We're still in a profession where the supply of lawyers is greater than the demand and you better make sure that you stand out somehow or you're going to really have a tough life.
1: This is just, man, it's been tremendous. You know, before we went on, we were talking about one of my motivations for starting the podcast is, is purely selfish. You know, it's to, it's to look up if people have been doing it, you know, five, 10, 15 years longer, however much longer. Um, or not as long and just better, you know, but, but looking up and, and just being able to consistently and constantly learn from, from folks and then ask the question, you know, it, a couple of things always come through, you know, first is, well, hell, if, if, and I remember learning this from my dad when I was a kid, well, you know, if they can do it, why the hell can't you, you know, if they're going to the, if they're going to the seminar and those articles are out there and they read them, hell, you want to do what they're doing? Damn it, go read them <laughs> and find some, find some new articles. Combined with the the realization, I think it's it's for every lawyer and every person to really ask themselves, am I willing to do that? And if I'm not, then I can't expect to get the same results that that Steve Garston has, or that that Joe Fried, or Michael Weas, or you know, any. We've had a number of guests. There was a guest we had named Chris Hamilton out of Dallas, Texas, who pretty much just practices in and around Dallas, uh, but he's the fellow who got the multi-billion dollar verdict. Against Spectrum recently, and you know, for him, the the real kind of genesis of his explosion as a trial lawyer uh, was losing, <laughs> and realizing there was a hell of a lot he didn't know, and going out and hopping in Lisa Blue's back pocket, um, and learning as much as he could from from her and other people, and now the guy's getting billion dollar verdicts. You know, so you've you've been incredibly kind to me for how close to almost a decade now, which is is funny to say. And I just I appreciate you continuing to to set and raise a standard for for a lot of other folks to pursue and, and really appreciate you taking time to come on the podcast, Steve.
0: Well, you're turning your shit heads too, Kenny, but I really appreciate it. And thank you. And I appreciate our friendship.
1: Oh man, you're just you're wonderful. Wonderful. For people who don't know you as well, I know Michigan Auto Law. Can they just go to that, that website? What's the best way for, for folks to get to know you or to reach out to you?
0: Yeah, the easiest way is our website, which is Michigan Auto Law.
1: Wonderful. Steve, we're recording this in September. It'll probably air in October, early November. I hope that Michigan is still undefeated when uh when, we <laughs> when this goes to air. And if at some point we see Clemson and Michigan uh, in the playoffs, even if we're sitting on the opposite side of the stadium, I'd love to attend that kind of playoff game with you.
0: That would be something. I would look forward to that.
1: All right, buddy. Thank you so much for everyone listening. Our guest today has been Steve Gersten from Michigan Auto Law, and this has been Kenny Berger and the podcast is Best Practices. Thank you so much for listening.